Today's episode of The Letterbox Show is brought to you by our friends over at LG who have just recently launched their shiny new HQ page on Letterboxd. You can follow their HQ page to keep up with their recommendations on what you should be watching on an LG OLED and tips on how to best set up your TV. I just searched reviews that mention LG OLED TVs and it's always great to see what people are watching on them. Monica watched Mad Max Fury Road and wrote, so good on the new LG 4K OLED TV. And Michael watched Coco and said, it's the gold standard for 4K HDR showcase on my new LG OLED TV. The colors and visuals are stunning. Quote, end quote. You can follow LG OLED Movie Club on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash LG OLED. And now, on with the show. Hi, it's Gemma Gracewood, Editor-in-Chief at Letterboxd, and welcome to a special episode of The Letterboxd Show, featuring none other than the creator of The Magic Mike and Ocean's Eleven movies, Mr. Steven Soderbergh himself. Not content with Magic Mike XXL and his New York noir series Full Circle, Soderbergh recently dropped yet another surprise on his fans, a sci-fi comedy web series called Command Z, starring an AI Michael Sarah and a time-traveling tumble dryer. Gemma, what's this all about? Slim, glad you asked. For just a $7.99 donation to charity, you can find out for yourself. Just kidding. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Actually, I'll let Letterboxd member Josh Legal tell you. He calls Command Z a silly Soderbergh for our silly times. It's a pretty compelling and a very silly idea. Can we use time travel to get a word in the ear of the heads of tech and commerce and big oil and get them to change their evil ways before it's too late? Uh, Stephen was inspired by Kurt Anderson's book, Evil Geniuses, and Stephen and Kurt created the eight-episode web series together. It all adds up to the length of a feature film, and the idea is to motivate film lovers to get politically active. And you spoke to Mr. Soderbergh. No big deal. What a treat. No big deal. I did. This guy is Mr. Independent Cinema. He won the Palm Door for Sex, Lies, and Videotape. He won the Oscar for Traffic. He has Aaron Brockovich and Logan Lucky and Mitchell Beaupre's favorite film, Kimmy, in his credits. Yes, and, and sorry to Mitchell. Uh, we did not talk Kimmy. All Stephen wanted to talk about was how karaoke is going to bring world peace and why Below Deck is his favorite TV show. I, I would caution that if you're just here for Magic Mike Chat, you're out of luck. But we did, we did get into the 25th anniversary of the J-Lo classic, Out of Sight. Have a listen. You yourself are a famous list maker. And I love, I think we all love that you share lists every year, which is how we discovered that you're a Below Deck fan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can I ask, what is it about Below Deck? What is well, it? it's about work. You know, unlike some shows, this is activity that would be going on whether there were cameras there or not. Um, and so it's not manufactured in the way that some reality shows are but it really is about work and it's difficult work and they work long hours and it's extremely intimate and obviously they cast hoping for 
the the most drama possible between the crew and the captain, and they're pretty good at that. But I, uh, as a as a process show I, and a problem solving exercise, I find it really compelling and helpful. I think people who have jobs where they have to interact with people can watch a show like Below Deck and see themselves in it. And, and you're constantly yelling at the screen. Mostly, I think the show is a really strong example for people if they choose to view it this way of when to keep your mouth shut and when to speak, um, which is one of the harder things to learn in life. Um, you know, there's, I think somebody codified it the, the three questions you ask in a situation is, does X need to be said? Does X need to be said right now? Does X need to be said right now by me? And you should really, you know, be honest with yourself when asking those questions. I mean, those are... Those are lessons for for anyone on a film set, in a way. Oh, yeah. I was yeah. I was also just thinking about how um, I mean, I got some below deck vibes from Command Z, in in that you've got workers at, at different levels, um, yes, being sent in to do tricky and intimate jobs, and and not just that, but uh, workers paid at a certain level of income being sent to do those jobs by by people with squillions of dollars, by a person with squillions of dollars. Uh, a friend of mine worked for one of Europe's richer families, and this the the insights that she gave me into how much those below deck those yacht trips those those family holidays cost. I mean, we're talking yeah. about the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh yeah, with a wine cellar that is equipped with every year of Chateau de Kim possible plus everything else. And not all of it is drunk, of course. It just has to be available. And it's it's, it's a level of living that is kind of impossible to imagine to you and I. Well, it, it sort of begs the question of how we establish for ourselves and the culture what is enough. Mm. And it's it's... I feel lucky that I grew up around, you know, in a resolutely middle-class environment. My father was a college professor. I was one of six kids. So, you know, we didn't, I, I never went without, but, you know, we didn't have a lot of stuff. But that wasn't, my parents were fortunately not interested in all in, at all in status or anything like that. So I, I and money wasn't spoken of not because it was off limits, but it 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 just didn't it wasn't part of my parents' um, desire. Like they didn't view success as being tied to how much money we had. And so I think when you grow up in an environment where status and money are not presented to you as uh, goals, then then you're you're lucky. Mm. Now I didn't, but at the time, 
to be fair, when I was growing up, um, there, there wasn't the opportunity. There weren't shows like Boho Tech and there wasn't social media and there wasn't, um, as much as, uh, there wasn't as much focus on status and, and the sort of trappings of being wealthy as there are now, you know? Mm. Um, so I was lucky in that regard as well. Yeah. I feel, I feel extraordinarily lucky to have grown up at least been a teenage girl at a time where there was no social media. I don't know how young people navigate this. I really don't. I mean, it's, it's easy for me to say, well, just don't get on it. Um, you know, people are, you read articles about people being bullied on social media and you, your initial reaction, if you're my age is put your phone down <laughs> and just don't look at that stuff. I mean, I was bullied in school physically um, when I was young because I was small, but you know, that, that I, even at that age, I sort of integrated that into, you know, the school experience. Um, and it didn't, it, it didn't, it was annoying, but it, it didn't, it didn't really derail me or, or I kind of played it up to be honest. This is the thing <laughs> with kids is I kind of played it up a little bit to my parents. Like I was being bullied, but I pretended that it bothered me more than it actually did because it got me attention from my parents and my dad. And so, you know, <laughs> we, we have to, with, with all the issues now confronting children, um, it's, it's, it's really complex because I know what it's like to be a kid and, and to assume, to apply a sort of rational actor theory to an eight or a nine-year-old when you're talking about this kind of stuff. Yeah, that's a that's a big assumption that you're making, that the kid is 100% pure in terms of their intention and their description of what's happening to them. Because I can tell you, I spun it <laughs> to make it look worse because... Because, you know, I got sympathy. Got that attention you needed. But also uh, to Steven Soderbergh's bullies, I would say, who's got the Oscar now? Yeah, well, that <laughs> I couldn't control that. But like I said, this was, this was for whatever reason, this is like sixth grade, seventh grade. Then it kind of went away. And, you know, I, I had a growth spurt. And by the time I was in ninth grade, I was making movies and and really didn't care what else was happening to me all all I was thinking about was that from the moment I woke up until I fell asleep and so school at that point became this <laughs> thing that I had to deal with you know 6 or 7 hours a day um and I couldn't wait to get out ah oh, isn't it just the best when you find your thing and and yeah. you you really have found your thing i mean this commandsy is is your third thing this year alone, uh, helmed by you, not including uh, projects still to come that you have been part of. And so I, I guess we should dive in, Command Z. Yeah. It's an eight-episode web series released 
by you. Anyone can watch it for $7.99 and that donation goes to two very important uh, charitable causes inspired by Kurt Anderson's book Evil Geniuses written with Kurt and a bunch of comedians who also appear in the series. It asks the question if we could go back through a wormhole in the space-time continuum to influence some of today's harm-causing billionaires, how might we change the future and to what degree? It's such a it's such an optimistic and also very, it must be said, very, very, very funny series. Well, we hope so. I mean, it's it's some years ago I was working on a project that ended up not getting made, but we referred to it internally as the brain movie. And um we were interviewing specialists. Um, who deal in neuroscience and cognition. And one of the things that we would ask them um, is in what state is a person most likely to change a deeply held belief? And all of them said when they're laughing that you are open. When you're laugh, when somebody makes you laugh, you open up in a way that's unique. The only other thing that's comparable, although slightly different, is music. And so Michael Sarah's whole riff on karaoke at one point, he's actually articulating a pet theory of mine that karaoke is a sort of miracle neural pathway opener. Um, I've seen it. And then there's this Crazy idea I have for karaoke subsidies. What? Well, basically. What, <laughs> what subsidies? You, well, so karaoke has been shown to be sort of an empathy hack. Okay. You know, where it can be the fastest way to make two groups of people or two individuals connect. It, it, people who have no ability to connect or even communicate. Yeah, you yeah. might not even speak the same language. Right. And it's a direct channel to having a shared experience. And f- feeling empathy for for another person. Oh God, that's so true. I've seen I've seen two groups of people who don't even speak the same language, in a matter of minutes, become completely unified in a in a room that was set up for karaoke. And there's just something that happens when the person standing up there feels all the support coming from the room because everybody knows what it's like to stand up there. And then when you're watching somebody, you're sending them all of this empathy and good vibes because you want to see them succeed. And it's a, it's a, what in the, I, I, don't, I don't know how to legislate. Uh, <laughs> legislate for compulsory karaoke. Yeah. Like have the, <laughs> I think it'd be great if the government, um, if you got tax credits for every evening that you went out and either did karaoke or went to a comedy club. Yeah, and and went there by bicycle or public transport. There you go. <laughs> and you get even more tax credits. I would be remiss if I didn't ask uh, Stephen, what's your what's your favorite karaoke jam? What's your song? You know what? I have not yet stood up there. What? Um, yeah, this is going to be. <laughs> so you've got this, this, this be a- pet theory, but you haven't. Yeah. Oh, just because <laughs> as a witness, yeah, um, but. I'm working my way toward that. 
I want to find something, A, that I can actually pull off, yeah. but but is a total shock <laughs> to anybody who's watched. Like, it can't, it's got to be, I can't believe he's doing that song, and I can't believe that he can do that song. So I'm working my way up to it. I love that. I, 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 my advice as someone who has done a lot of karaoke and I've, I've figured it out, you either want, if you're, if you're quite shy about your singing, you either want to pick something that, that everybody will sing from the get go. So your, right. your voice is drowned out, you know, just a big banger, Guns N' Roses, Sweet Child of Mine, something like right, that. Right. Or um, my personal fave is Dolly Parton's Here You Come Again, which is not one of her more famous Dolly Parton songs. And so people aren't going to immediately jump in and there and sing it. It's pretty famous. It's pretty famous, but it's not, you yeah. know, your nine to five. To my point, me doing a Dolly Parton song, I think that's... It'd be perfect. It's got to be like that. Yeah. You know, it's people have really got to have their mouths hanging open. Yeah. Or, or learn an entire rap. That's my yeah. third piece of advice. That would yes. be the one. Jump up and do, I, I don't know, Wham's, uh, Young Guns. Right. I'm 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 working on it. <laughs> One of the things that you know and I and 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 I've I've heard you you don't read letterbox reviews about your own films. I'm sorry I apologize in advance. I'm going to read you some that I've picked out because I'm interested in what they pull out about reactions to Comanzi and and they raise some questions. So Stephen Gillespie writes that Comanzi is a cool thing advocating for greater causes. There are two clear points. Powerful individuals are a root cause of our ever-widening dystopia. Uh, and secondly, change needs to happen on a wider systemic level if it's going to do anything. Um, but he, he does talk about how it's self-satirical, a mockery of how we replace activism with art, but a well-meaning and non-judgmental polemic. And I wondered how much of the humour was was directed back at the series itself. Well, it you have to have that... It has to fire in every direction, um, or or it just becomes a lecture, and and so to to acknowledge and 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 make fun of the the entire construct, which is a bunch of artists sitting around telling people how to fix the world, <laughs> yeah. like you. I mean, she's sort of she, the Jamie character, kind of articulates that in her last scene with Kerning Fealty on the street, you know, where he's saying, You of all people should be stoked. You'll be so perfectly equipped to accelerate progress long-term, here, now, on the ground. I think you need to see this as a unique chance. I don't give a fuck about what you think I need. I don't need you to tell me I can make a difference or how you fucking Gandalf want to be. I'm always right. Powerful rich guys like you always just want control. Fair point, and that's exactly the kind of righteous passion I think is so essential right now. Fuck you. You know, Jamie, it would be a tragedy if out of anger you squandered this special opportunity to keep shaping history, to be somebody who makes the future better. You need to shut up before I hurt you. Emma was also right about time travel. It never works. She's right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's, it's, it, is, it is arrogant. Um, but that being said, if the alternative is that you do nothing or the alternative is that I do nothing um, to contribute to a conversation and, and in the hopes that somebody gets activated enough to want to do something mm. um, that's worse, mm. you know, mm. and that's kind of the point of the show. Uh, that's also 
explored, which is you don't have to do everything. You don't, have, you don't even have to devote your whole life to it. Just pick a thing, pick one thing that you're, you're interested in um, that might improve things and just do that one thing. Like every, at this point, everything helps and everything matters. Yeah. I just finished. I just finished yesterday reading the scariest book I've ever read. Oh, God. Um, which is called The Heat Will Kill Us First by Jeff Goodell. And it's terrifying. Like, it's absolutely terrifying. And so there's, there's, I mean, people have been, so when was James Hansen's speech to Congress? 30 years ago, maybe more. We don't have time to debate this. Uh, mm-hmm. We got to start, we got to start really doing things now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what is wrong with us? <laughs> well, that's that's you know that's another question: is why aren't we doing a better version of this? Um, and it'd be interesting for somebody to try and parse when in literature it's got to be mid nineteenth century, I would imagine, when we became interested in this idea of going back into the past to change things. What was the what was the sort of cultural um, aroma that got people thinking in in a way that oh I can see the trajectory of this going a certain way um, and as a fantasy what if we could go back and fix things I'd be curious to know like when that became a trope you yeah. know because. It's an indication that we know it's going the wrong way. There's a thesis in there. I think I think you need a, a book. I, off the top of my head, I'm thinking yeah. Jules Verne or somebody like well, that. This is the thing, because it was the it was the 1800s when we started in literature wanting to go into the future. Right. Um, possibly even before then, who, who, who knows? But in terms of what has been published, the the idea of of flying machines and yeah. So when was the when did the shift come? Yeah. When did we start looking backwards? Because the implication is obviously we've screwed up. So it, it would be interesting to, if, to see if you could really find the seeds of that idea. Um, but you know, I think it's again if you can if you can make your points quickly and generate um, you know a good time. Uh, then I think that's the takeaway. You've got a better chance of the takeaway being, oh, okay, I want to think about that. If so, if you can just get somebody to think about it, that's a win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, doing nothing is not an option, but but I do think that there's a there's there's a general sense of overwhelm about how much needs to be done and being only one person. Oh, I think that's our. I think that's everybody's default mode yeah. right now is feeling overwhelmed. Yeah, to combat that. You know, I would encourage people to go. That's why I say just pick one, just pick one thing. Mm. The funny thing about the time travel in Command Z is that our three employees are thirty years in the future, traveling back to this month, traveling yeah. back to this this month, this year, and so uh, in in that respect, you need to be a time traveler yourself going forward thirty years to imagine this and to figure out incrementally. How much of a percentage matters in in you know how much of the Amazon we have left and and how much the the earth is warmed in 
my God, whatever the form of social media will be 30 years into the future and who owns it and whether they're still challenging each other to UFC fights or whatever the fuck they're up to this week. I mean, my God. Well, and also in our case, you know, we shot this a year ago. A year ago right now we were shooting. Um, And so that's a form of, of time travel in that you're trying to imagine something that will show up in the culture 12 months hence um how do you balance that what what issue what issues do you want to talk about will they all still be the same um or will they not um we lucked out in the sense that the the ocean is boiling well, <laughs> right the, now. Yeah, we lucked out that the, <laughs> the earth is on fire. We're talking about AI a lot. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know that that not that we're prescient uh, for for understanding that, but it did it did feel like we we kind of appeared at a moment where a lot of the things that we were talking about are in the headlines. Yeah, and you've done this before. In March 2020, I wrote a story for Letterboxd about the data happening on our platform alone around Contagion, your 2011 film, um, about a pandemic. And it was really interesting because there were sort of two, two, we noticed that there were two types of people during that year. There were the people logging Todd Haynes's safe <laughs> uh, <laughs> to to sort of express this this uh, I guess individual isolated sense of panic, and then there were the people who were watching and logging Contagion, and I was I was a Contagion person, and and for for the entirety of the next year, I would stop and go, okay, we're on the Contagion timeline, are we? Ah, the trucks are rolling out down the highway yeah, with the right. vaccines, <laughs> and and I have to thank you for that because it. We talk about whether art can change anything. Uh, Roger Ebert's beautiful quote about film being an empathy machine is, is wildly overused these days. But but in fact, contagion was an important tool in my personal anxiety management. So I have to thank you for that. Oh, well, good. I mean, at least it was interesting to look back and see what we were right about and what we were wrong about. Um, the good news, the best news is the advances in technology got us to a vaccine so much faster than we were able to in 2011. You would have been looking at years. And my understanding is that they had the, they had the basics of a working vaccine in at the beginning of January. Like that's how, that's how fantastic this new technology is. In fact, when uh, Anthony Fauci saw Contagion, he knew all of our consultants, obviously, and said, you know, my only critique is they got to the vaccine too fast. And he was right. We just, for the purposes of a movie, we we accelerated that. But the good news is now we can do that. What we did not anticipate was that the Jude Law character would be the president of the United States. That That we missed. The swine flu vaccine killed people back in 1976. Nerve disease. So we're all guinea pigs starting from today. Just wait. They'll start listing side effects like the credits at the end of a movie. People trust you, Alan. If you tell them not to take it. That's right. They trust me. All 12 million unique visitors. I'm a trusted man stepping up to a microphone in front of a very large crowd. That's who I am. That's the brand. 
I say the right thing. Say yeah, and that he was one lone actor, and and obviously in 2011, you know, social media wasn't as as advanced as it as it was in 2020, and so those ideas didn't have bridges to easily cross. And I, I don't know about you, but you know, we've all got family members who are down rabbit holes, and one of the three pivotal organisations you point people to if if you're watching Command Z on the website, um, there's the wonderful 350.org, like an, an incredible organisation, but you're also pointing people towards uh, Disinformation Network. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Especially on a day when, sorry, I opened my, my news and saw that, uh, yay, Elon is suing <laughs> Suing the Center for Management of Disinformation. Yeah. Oh, I love it. <laughs> no. Well, it's just, again, this is these are human problems. And the fact is, bad ideas scale faster than good ideas. And bad information um, is more exciting uh, and, and activates, you know, our, our, lights up our brain more than good ideas. Peace is boring is, <laughs> is really the problem. Yeah. People, there are certain people who are drawn to chaos. Because it's exciting yeah. and they get a, they get a dopamine hit from that. Go do karaoke, go do karaoke. Exactly. I reckon it's what the chaos agents need. Good ideas require more complex thinking. They require large scale cooperation over long periods of time. They're harder to implement and sustain Bad ideas are, like I said, more exciting, scale faster. Often, if they ju- if they don't require you to do nothing, or at least just say no to something, they involve you getting activated, doing really dramatic things. And so this, again, this is a human problem, is making good ideas sexy. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's the cliche, it takes a year to build a house. You can burn it down in half an hour. Oh so, God. you know, in the, in the world that we live in, assholes have a disproportionate destructive power. You can have, you can be having the best party in the world with the 50 coolest people that you can think of. One asshole rolls up and suddenly the cops are there and it's over. And this is, there's a really good book actually called Assholes, a Theory by Aaron James. <laughs> You got to read this because yeah. he's he's <laughs> he's taking the position. I think it's true of we need to figure this out. Like these people are a problem. They feel that the rules that we all live by do not apply to them, and they na- navigate the world with that belief, and they're incredibly destructive. Um, I don't know what the answer is. I wish some of the various texts that were dictated from on high thousands of years ago had language, a magic string of words that could neutralize assholes, but there's nothing there that I can find. Um, it's, it's a real problem. Do you ever think though, that sometimes you, you need to fight asshole with asshole, you know, that, that they were all a bit too polite. I don't know. I hope not. Um, I, I want there to be a better way to, to deal with assholes than being an asshole back to them. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, the most, the, well, this is the question for, for the world 
is it okay to discriminate against assholes? <laughs> I, I, this is an open question. Because the, the easiest way to deal with them is to just avoid them and not, not allow them to be around you. Mm-hmm. Um, but how, what is, how does that work? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, look, in, in my business, we have a no asshole clause. Everybody knows who they are and I won't hire them. Um, so there's that. Mm-hmm. I was thinking back to uh, Kamanzi and, and the idea of, you know, asshole billionaires. Um, <laughs> Liev, his, his role in this, he's so good. Oh, my oh, God. How good is his dog? Oh, well, this is the thing. The dog is even better. So Dan Scannon writes on Letterboxd, Liev Schreiber rattling off his list of sins. I walked out of Hamilton when I realized it was a musical. When I was 11, I swallowed a toad on a dare. I immediately puked and it was still alive, but then I stepped on it. I never shit the bed, but I did shit right next to it one time when I was 22. I met up a brother who drowned. I find my own body odor comforting, which is why I never wear deodorant. I have a tattoo of my own name. I've never laughed. I once left a dead chipmunk on the doorstep of a guy who beat me in foosball. It was already dead. I don't hire the Irish. You are the fifth dog I've named Benny. I walked out of Hamilton when I realized it was a musical. He's the MVP of the series in a walk. Also wild that our generation's most versatile and constantly innovative filmmaker is recommending I go watch Hotel for Dogs, but who am I to doubt him at this point? Well, again, that was the, the you know, suggested viewing lists at the end of each episode were an opportunity to, to ride that line tonally of, of, you know, letting people know that, yeah, we're talking about this stuff, but we're still trying to have fun while we talk about it. Um, <laughs> I and, needed to check because, you know, Turner and Hooch is also on that particular list of that episode. I, and- I'm just saying, if you like dogs, <laughs> that's it, if you, you could do worse than to watch those movies. It's they're, so true. They're for dog people. And um, just so you know, people have already listified all those recommendations on. See, this is why Letterboxd is handy. It's like, okay, there's all these recommendations. Someone's put them in a list. I can go to that list and add them to my watch list and and Bob's your uncle. Perfect. Um, I wanted to ask, speaking of Letterboxd and reviews, on your website, Extension 765, you have a lot of merch. You have a lot of great threads. Um, you recently added a Pauline KL t-shirt, writing that she was allergic to pretension, loved trash if it was fun, had some style. Most importantly, unlike most critics who are at their best or wittiest when they dislike something, Pauline was at her absolute best when she loved something. And because Letterboxd is a place for people to write their thoughts on films, and some of those folks are professional critics and many want to be, um, I guess, could you expand a bit on what you wrote on your soda blog about her her love of trash and her commitment to subjectivity, to honest subjectivity. Well, she was just unique in that she was unabashedly personal and 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 operated from a place of absolute subjectivity and felt that was kind of the whole point of being a critic. And she pulled from so many other art forms. I mean, you'd read reviews and end up with a list of things to look at or see or read 
that had nothing to do with movies, but that she had sort of wound into her review. And there was nobody like her before she showed up. And I would argue there's nobody that's any good since that isn't standing on her shoulders. Now, she appeared at the perfect time. Um, Her voice was needed and critics mattered. Movie, suddenly a movie critic mattered in a way that a movie critic hadn't mattered before at a time when movies were starting to matter in a way they hadn't before. In the mid-60s through the end of the 70s, that whole American new wave. Movies just don't occupy the cultural real estate now that they did back then. So, you know, her period of influence by the time the early 80s had shown up and the studios really took back control for most of the 80s of the films that were being made, that the the era of a critic having that kind of influence was, I think, over. And so now, you know, it's much more fragmented. Um, Movies are not the dominant cultural art form that they were in the 20th century. Movies were, I think, the dominant art form of the 20th century. They will not be the most dominant art form of the 21st century. Um, And so she just kind of was, was... the right person at the right time. And as I said in in the little piece, you know, she just taught you how to look at movies. And so I disagreed with her (laughs) on things all the time. There are things that she likes that I don't. And there are things that I think are fantastic that she didn't get or didn't like. Um, That wasn't the point. It, It just, it was... Having a take, yeah. having a specific take on something. That's the point. That's what a director needs, and it's what a critic needs. Um, and so I, I just find myself regularly kind of dipping in. You know, I've got all of her books that she published with her reviews, and they're fun just to go back and, and spin through and read her take on a specific film. Um, and, you know, it's it's unfortunate that that role doesn't really exist anymore. And that's, you know, uh, God, it used to be the, the reason to buy that particular day of the week's newspaper. And it's, yeah, it's all part and parcel of the dismantling of, of the kind of 20th century traditional media. And it is a, it's a damn shame. But we do have... We do have great takes from regular, regular film lovers. There's a great letterbox list, a work in progress list called Steven Soderbergh is thanked in the end credits. Oh. So we need to chat <laughs> about what it is. Yeah. About what it is that drives you to help other people make their films. Um, I know Divinity is coming soon. Godfrey Reggio, the wonderful Godfrey yes. Reggio's Once Within a Time is coming soon. And yep. and there and there has been much more in the past and there will be more in the future. So, well, it's, it's, it's something that I feel obliged 
to do in the sense that you, you maybe because my father was an educator and, and was in, engaged in many sort of extracurricular activities, both at the universities where he taught and within the communities where he lived. And so this sense of using whatever juice you have to help other people is something that I grew up around. Um, it happens very in a very haphazard, serendipitous fashion. Um, I got a, the reason I got hooked up with Eddie Alcazar on Perfect, uh, the film he made before Divinity, was there was an actor, Chris Santos, who was in The Girlfriend Experience, who was on Eddie's set. And he texted me and he goes, I think you need to meet this guy. Like, this guy's got something going on. You should meet him. You should talk to him. And I did. And, we, you know, I got involved in the sort of post-production um, part of Perfect. And then we started talking about other stuff. Um, you know, almost 30 years ago now, um, Nancy Tenenbaum, who was one of my producers on Sex Lies, said, yeah. I saw this amazing short made at Columbia Film School by this kid, Greg Matola. Uh, <laughs> you should check this short out. And I saw it. I thought it was great. We started talking to Greg, like, what do you want to do? What do you, you know, it's like, well, I've been writing scripts. And, you know, eventually the day trippers came out of that. So it's, 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 it's something that I just sort of let happen. Um, it's, it's, and I have to be careful that it doesn't um, take up too much time um, mm. away from the things that I'm supposed to be doing. My goal is to facilitate in such a way that I don't have to do a lot. Like that's yeah. my, <laughs> yeah. my goal um, yeah. is to either help make it happen or if it's a pure editorial thing, like, Hey, will you give us notes on this? That, you know, it's something containable that, that doesn't um, turn into the sorcerer's apprentice, but I, I enjoy <laughs> doing it and it's fun. It's especially gratifying when you feel like a thing would not have come to pass had mm. you not helped. That's, that's a good feeling as opposed to something that was going to happen anyway. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's the same with Command Z and any number of your projects where you, you, you also do that work by casting, you know, you've brought three brilliant comedians to my attention who who, you know, I was vaguely aware of, but, you know, here they are perfectly inhabiting excellent dramatic roles, uh, as well as writing on the series. So, yeah. yeah, like opportunities all round. I have to ask a couple of questions. One is about to travel through time. The trio must listen to the theme to Mahogany uh, from the Diana Ross film directed by Barry Gordy and Terry Richardson whilst uh, pressing a button on a on a reworked tumble dryer and drinking some worm juice. It's a great, very, very funny and perfectly lo-fi time travel device. Very, very silly. Does mahogany 
hold a place in your cinephile heart or is it the lyrics to that song? Well, the lyrics are pretty perfect for almost anything. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it, it, it got stuck in my head um, when I was working with Elvis Mitchell on his documentary, Is That Black Enough For You? And while we were working on that, and this was, you know, a process that, that played out over a couple of years, um, I was going back and revisiting a lot of the films that were discussed in the documentary. And Mahogany was one of the films that I wanted to go back and watch. I'd seen it in the 70s, but I hadn't seen it since. Um, and I was reminded of, of what a what a you know what an earworm that song was, and and immediately sort of put it in my back pocket as an element to be used in some very very different context. And then as we were coming up with um, the the. Con the conceit of how they time travel. I thought, okay, this is this is where we're going to get to use mahogany. There's there's going to be there's going to be three things. There's the juice, there's the song, and there's the dryer. Um, so, you know, again, this is how things work. You sort of snatch things out of the air, put them in a bucket, and uh, wait for the the moment where they become useful. I love I love a good time travel conceit that's that's in the everyday. I think uh, you know my all time favorite will always because they are my favorites will be Bill and Ted um, oh, yeah. because I just I just love how more and more crowded that phone booth gets. It's not the TARDIS. It's it's still just you know its own size. Yeah. Do you have any Do you have any favorites from films you that are looking one, at? That's a really good one, and I was I was very um, happy to. Been involved with the the third Bill and Ted film through <sighs> Ed Solomon, and was yeah just really happy it got made because because everybody wanted to be there, like everybody wanted to make it, like nobody got that was not a salary play. That was no. you know we really want to go back and finish this. And it so, was so good. It's really if, fun. Oh, it's really fun. Why would we be playing open mic night at 6.15 p.m. when, in fact, we have become such huge rock stars again? Yeah. Here's the answer. Yeah. Us being here is humorously ironic. You believe us? No. Not at all. Well, I feel sorry for you, Ben. Look, oh. it's, it's, I think we came it's hard to beat. Uh, it's hard to beat the DeLorean. That was a pretty inspired, similarly kind of lo-fi, even though, you know, it, it had some car. technology. Yeah. Um, that's part of it. Part of what made it so fun was how absurd it was. Um, nobody, nobody really embraced, you know, uh, uh, something that silly as, <laughs> as being a workable time travel model. Um, so that's, that's hard to beat, but, it's, it's, I've often wondered what's left to explore, you know, yeah, in terms yeah. of time travel. Um, especially, I think, I don't know, I wouldn't know now how to, how you make a time travel movie that isn't at some level a comedy. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, 
it's I I think it would be tricky. I mean, I know there are shows that do it, uh, but I think it it my me being me, it would I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to make a serious time travel movie like it. Just I wouldn't be able to do it. The the Zucker Brothers version is is so yeah. I, I'd be constantly aware of how close that is to whatever we would be doing and taking seriously. It would be hard. I'm excited about the time travel movie where Steven Soderbergh travels back in time to get singing lessons in order to win the karaoke competition Ooh, in the future. Yeah, yeah. But out of sight, 25 years old this year. Wow. Can we get wow. J-Lo a, 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 you know, a belated Oscar? It's, it is one of the films with the best chemistry between the two leads. And I wonder if you, you have favourite chemistry between two leads films. Well, I mean, the... It's such a it's such a it's such a weird thing to try and conjure because you you're you're really guessing um, in a lot of ways. There are you know very famously there are married couples who on screen sometimes don't have the kind of heat and chemistry that they clearly have in their real life, and then you have you can have people in real life who probably wouldn't want to hang out with each other offset who on camera, you know, just completely sparkle together. So it's a weird, it's a weird thing. And so I'm always very conscious of making sure that I'm, you know, creating an environment that will, that, that could result in, in a feeling that's tangible, but also, being aware of that I've got to use all the tools, you know, in my toolkit to essentially in the, in the case of out of sight, glamorize, you know, this, this relationship and have it be a real, a real movie kind of generate kind of movie heat. Um, And, you know, George and I really, wanted her and um we were you can see why like she she's great in in that part she's just i i couldn't have been happier with with what she delivered and it's one of the things i'm most proud of and that was a that's a real watershed movie for me because i'd been in the wilderness for some years uh after sex lies. And I think there were probably some real questions about whether I was going to have a place in, in the sort of mainstream film industry. And so if I fail, if that film doesn't work creatively, if people don't view it as being a good film, I'm in real trouble. Um, and George, George was in a similar situation in that people felt like this guy's a movie star, but when is it going to, when are we going to see the thing that, that really shows what he's capable of? I, I was of a mind as soon as I saw George on ER, I said, that guy's a movie star. Mm-hmm. And so when part of Part of what was appealing to me um, while I waited for other people to pass on the project 
um, so that so that I could do it. Um, I was really excited about working with George because I felt like this dude's absolutely a movie star. This is the part, and he and I are gonna you know link arms and and go do this. And so that was that was a big moment and the you know the beginning of um, a really strong yeah relationship. The beginning of Danny Ocean. I've got it. It's a J Lo song. You have to sing a Jennifer Lopez song. Oh, that's song. interesting. Karaoke. That's J-Lo. interesting. A lot of options there. A lot yeah. of options. Yeah. Boom. Can't yeah. wait. Well, I think everybody needs to be prepared for the fact that this may happen in a room where I'm alone. Thanks so much for listening to this special episode of the Letterbox Show. Command Z is available to purchase and watch at commandzseries.com. And just a reminder, every cent you spend to watch, it goes to a very good cause. And each episode has a list of film recommendations. We've put a link to one of those many lists on Letterbox in the episode notes. We'd love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word about all the great conversations just sitting around on Letterbox podcast feed waiting for your hungry cinephile ears. You can follow all of us, me, Slim, and our HQ page on Letterbox using the links in our episode notes. Thanks to our crew, production manager Sophie Shin, editorial producer Brian Formo, and of course, our audio genius Slim for making us sound amazing. And thanks to Letterbox member Trent Walton for the music. And to you for listening. Best in Show is a Below Tape Deck production. <laughs> This, this, this is a Tape Deck Podcast. Mm-hmm.